0: This week, Sweden and Finland have decided to submit their paperwork to join NATO. Elon Musk has bought Twitter, and Dr. Fauci has officially said the U.S. is out of the pandemic phase of COVID 19. My name is Noah Huey, and this is Under the Stars. Welcome back to another episode, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm feeling a lot better from last week, though I do have a lingering cough and some minor congestion problems that I will, or I have been, and I will continue to keep monitoring until they have complete re, completely receded. Um, again, there, there's no evidence that this is COVID-19. It's likely just a seasonal flu, or seasonal cold, excuse me, not seasonal flu, um, though I may have had seasonal flu that first time I was sick earlier this month. Um, so yeah, that's just a little minor note about my personal life. Uh, as we return to the news. So, and I, this is something, this first piece of news that I'm about to go into is something that I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, no, that's it, at least according to some reports. Um, however, before we begin, I just want to remind you to follow my Instagram. That's at Noah. that's at H-U-G-H-U-Y-N-O-A-H, that's at Noah, and, subs- and to subscribe to Under the Stars on YouTube to get all of my favorite clips and moments, um, from the show, Uh, that I save on there. Um, You can also find Under the Stars on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you give your podcasts. And wherever you're watching, if you're watching on Spotify or if you're just listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else, Uh, make sure to give, give it a review if you can. It'd be greatly appreciated. You can also support the show through my merch and my books in the shop section of my website. And be on the lookout for my fourth book, Hanging in the Balance, which will be available for purchase on Amazon or in my store on Friday, May 29th. That's the end, so it's roughly this time next month. Um, it will be available, so be on the lookout for that. Um, it's, I think, my best book yet in terms of both content and form, and uh, I'd greatly appreciate it. Thanks so much. So our first piece of news is about Sweden and Finland. Um, NATO, you know, this the reason this is so important is because really more so its relationship um, to the agency as a whole and its relationship to Russia, which threatened Sweden and Finland over an action like this. You know, Sweden and Finland, especially Sweden are infamously um, neutral nations. And so a move like this is big for both um, symbolic reasons, as well as um, for the implications it has about the, the, the agency, um, as, as well as its relationship with, um, with uh, the East, with Russia, Um, So this is from The Guardian. The Sweden and Finland have agreed to submit simultaneous membership applications to the U.S.-led NATO alliance as early as the middle of next month. Nordic media have reported the Finnish daily. It I think it's pronounced uh, Iltaut yeah, I don't know, I don't know a a Finnish daily newspaper said on Monday that Stockholm had suggested the two countries indicate their willingness to join on the same day, and that Helensky has agreed as long as the Swedish government has made its decision. The Swedish newspaper express cited government sources as confirming the report. The two countries' prime ministers said this month they were deliberating the question, arguing Russia's invasion of Ukraine had changed Europe's whole security landscape and dramatically shaped mindsets in the Nordic region. Finland's Prime Minister Sanna Marin said that then said then that her country, I've lost my place. Said then that her country, which shares a uh, 1,300 kilometer, which is about 18, 18 uh 810 miles, uh, border with Russia, would decide whether to apply to join the alliance quite fast in a few weeks, not months, despite the risk of infuriating Moscow. Her Swedish counterpart. Magdalena Andersson said Sweden had to be prepared for all kinds of actions from Russia and that everything had changed when Moscow attacked Ukraine. Russia has repeatedly warned both countries against the move. The Kremlin said it would be forced to, quote, restore military balance by strengthening its defenses in the Baltic, including by deploying nuclear weapons if the two countries decided to abandon decades of military non-alignment by joining NATO. Sweden's Foreign Minister, Anne Lind, said last week a wide ranging security policy review would be concluded by 13 rather than 31 May, or excuse me, by the 13th rather than the 31st of May, as originally planned, adding that with Finland's analysis already published, there is now a lot of pressure. Expressen said the simultaneous uh, applications would be submitted in the week of the 16th of May, coinciding with the state visit to Stockholm by the Finnish President, Soli Nitsu, excuse me. Ninitso? I'm afraid to mispronounce that, but I believe it's Ninitso. The Guardian could not independently confirm reports. Recent opinion polls have shown as many six, as 68% of Finns are now in favor of joining the alliance, more than double the figure before the invasion, with only 12% against. Polling in Sweden suggests a small majority of Swedes also back membership. Um, this is an interesting report. Um, I... I've been doing a lot of polls because I have an option to add polls to for my Spotify listeners or viewers if they happen to be watching the video version. So I've been doing a lot of polls. I don't know if my last one... They don't get tons of engagement. I maybe get one or two votes at most. Um, but I, I, I've been doing them recently. So I'm just going back to see now. But I've been doing them more recently. And this the poll I may do for this episode may be about whether or not you think Sweden or Finland's Decision to join would be a smart thing. You know, I talked a lot when this whole Ukraine invasion sort of started about a lot of the complexities there. You know, I have there are a lot of people that would probably be classified as um, uh, what's the term for people uh, uh, as tankies, I think is the term. Uh, basically, just people sort of shilling out for authoritarian or totalitarian governments um, that kind of they see reason in in Russia's uh Uh, assessment of nato as a dangerous organization for their country and you know it's easy for one to say that that is absolutely true or absolutely not true you know um putin and biden as the most extreme you know obvious um kind of spearheads of those ideas are are the obvious kind of example that it's easy to do that but it's harder to admit that perhaps there's a little more nuance there um you know like i I perfectly recognize that NATO um, has dangerous connections to military-industrial agencies such as Lockheed Martin and, and Raython, I think, specifically. And so do many of its member states and the representatives of those member states. But at the same time, I often think, and I especially think this when I see that, you know, the kind of discourse that happens on social media and online you know, I think it's easy to blow a lot of the danger out of proportion. You know, I'm not saying that there isn't, like, there isn't something to be suspicious of, but I, like, It's not worth anything, like nothing, not a single thing Russia has even remotely done, nothing, not even an inch of invasion, not not even an inch of a military boot, not even a single soldier in Ukraine or in any other nation, not even the military drills, drills that they were practicing on the outside of the Ukraine border before the invasion began. None of that was worth the kind of, I think, legitimate danger that NATO may have implied within it. Like, I, I again, I, I recognize that this that NATO is not a perfect organization and it's not the magical defender of freedom and goodness and happiness around the world. But I think it's a strong alliance for Western nations to protect the kinds of things they believe in. But I think that there there's a little bit being corroded out by military industrial agencies and it can probably be a little more reactive than it needs to. The 90s was proof of that. Um, but nothing Russia has done, none of their actions are justifiable. I mean, one, because the, the invasion of Ukraine has n- absolutely nothing really to do with NATO and has more to do with the ideological uh, and p- geopolitical dominance over Ukraine from the Russian standpoint, from particularly from the standpoint of, of Vladimir Putin. Um, but I I just i just n- n- no amount of danger that nato could ever p- potentially pose justifies a single inch of this invasion at all now when it comes to the issue kind of stepping aside from that of sweden and finland joining like i said there's a lot of symbolic value to that you know sweden and finland like they said are the, i just the nordic region is just historically non-aligned in these kinds of military political conflicts. And so the fact that they have decided that, you know, this would be something that we could really seriously consider, which I think is going to be incredibly likely, is a game changer in terms of geopolitical um, um, security in the West and, and I think around the world in a sense. But it also changes a lot of the perhaps political rhetoric. I'm interested to see how Russia responds because Russia is getting more and more desperate and angry and, and sort of destitute um, as every major move is made. I was having a conversation with a friend recently and they said they made a very excellent point in saying that Russia and all of its defenders entire concept of the invasion and everything it has to do with um, international geopolitics is, a, is one big whataboutism. It's one big, you know, a lot of the people saying trying to be more nuanced a lot of that conversation relies on 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 what about america what about yemen what about and the thing is all of those things are completely true there's no way you can say that the kinds of things that the u.s that nato that that any of the west contributed to i mean we just pulled out of the, one of the bloodiest most pointless wars i think in the history of the world the 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 war on terror recently in afghanistan which ended in total disaster let's not forget but that I think that that distinction means next to nothing because if even if we are not a, I suppose, better quote-unquote option, you know, I don't believe in lesser of two evils nonsense. I think that's total BS created by people that want to make you do things that they like, whether or not you actually think they're a good idea. But in terms of standing up for what's right, a nation or a group of nations that has historically failed to do that still has, you know, despite it being their their proposed values, still doesn't mean that that shouldn't be something they should aspire to be. By saying that we're overreacting to the largest degree, uh, that 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 we should do infinitely less, I think, is misjudged based in historical sort of, uh, not trauma, but in um, in historic. Uh, burnout sort of, you know, there there's when it comes to American politics and when it comes to America to international geopolitics, especially between the East and the West, when it comes to our perceptions of world governments um, as a species, I think there's a massive burnout feeling like a lot of people feel tired and hopeless, which I think no offense to anyone that feels this way. I I completely understand. I I was basically on the verge of this towards the end of my extreme conservative days. I, I think it's kind of stupid. Um, simply because I think that the reason people are so burnt out is because the internet has allowed us to overinflate how bad things are, but we also, we also, I think, make far too broad assumptions as a species. We think that things, that certain things that are bad must be, because they must, and certain bad things that happen just are, and so we have to comply. Like there's just so people. I feel like we live in an age where people absolutely refuse, refuse to live on principle. They live on these notions of survival. There's a lot of political survivalism, in my opinion, both in the American domestic landscape as well as in our perception of international geopolitical issues such as the Ukraine invasion, NATO, and all these other things. I think there's just so much of people... We strategize and we plan and we have these very fascinating conversations about geopolitics, but it always revolves around this idea of political survivalism about, you know, to kind of shrink it down to the domestic landscape for the United States. You know, I vote for for only Democrats or only Republicans because I have no other option. Um, You know, I don't want to vote for candidates that are probably going to lose. So I'm just going to vote for quote-unquote, the lesser of two evils, which is just a... that's just... that's a thought process that is a a one-way street to a a one-state... a one-state... um... a one-party state, um, which will inevitably become tyrannical, which is the exact point of making people... trying to peer-pressure people into voting for only one of two parties, because eventually you'll peer-pressure them enough to just vote for only one party, and then hopefully the goal is to get enough people to keep that party in power for long enough so that they can rewrite the rules to keep themselves in power indefinitely, um... That's a different story for another day. There's just a lot of that kind of thought process of political survivalism of I have to do what what keeps some sort of moral majority alive. And I guess I just don't subscribe to that idea, but that's, I think, because I have a natural aversion towards political factionism altogether. I think the idea of absolute good and absolute evil and the idea that that every issue can be simplified into... Into a two-dimensional phrase, or even a simplified version of a three-dimensional discussion, uh, which a, th- a simplified three-dimensional discussion really is a kind of a uh, oxymoron. Now that I'm really saying it out loud, so I suppose just two-dimensional would be the the better phrase. I just think that that kind of thought process just doesn't work. I think it's the it's the exact kind of process that allows authoritarian leaders to come to power. It's the exact kind of process that that air that air, that um restricts actual progress when we only do what we can to survive in the moment of, in this sort of political survivalism state um, I simply think that it it does absolutely nothing to try and make the world or the country uh, better as it is so um, I think that it's I think it's pointless and I, I think that what really needs to be applied here when going back to the actual issue at hand referring to Sweden and Finland I wouldn't know if I should say I, I I support the move or if I if I enjoy the move. I, I I really feel, frankly, um, um, if it it's immaterial to me right now. I, I think it's got a lot of symbolic value. I'd be interested in talking to someone who's much smarter than me and knows more about international geopolitics than I do. I'd like to hear their opinion before I were to come to any conclusion because I'm just not versed on the subject to try and make some sort of – I can tell you what I know, but, you know, like I like I've, I keep going back to, to domestic politics because that's really what I have more interest and in, more focus on, which is kind of unfair. Um, not really, that's not really – that's not an accurate representation of what I think. I don't have more interest on it. It's just what I am able to engage in more. Like I know federal domestic politics better than I know my local domestic politics. However, that is slowly changing. I learn a lot about domestic politics or my local politics every day. It's very interesting, but um, so I I'd, I'd be I'd be much more interested in hearing what a person who's actually well versed on this subject has to say before I were to come to any real conclusion. Though I do think it's interesting. I do think it's an interesting move, and I'm interested to see how Russia responds. You know, like I said, Russia's whole belief system is a big whataboutism kind of threatening. Using NATO, I feel, as a scapegoat for its own um, uh, despotic um um goals um which is ultimately just i mean that's how that country functions it's it's just the kind of um delusional again referring to that same word whataboutism that they rely on to to retain power so that so that Kiev or so that uh moscow excuse me um retains the kind of authoritarian power that it has um and i think that that's really the the biggest focus there that, that one could um, have this issue has been surprisingly big Elon Musk uh, bought out Twitter for 44 billion dollars on Mondays um, his whole pathology on the subject was on the notion of free speech he, he believes the platform doesn't protect the idea of free speech as well um, a lot of stuff about open open source data very interesting ideas very interesting ideas I'll give him that Um, Let me read from this. This is from the, I think this is a Reuters article. Um, Elon Musk clinched a deal to buy Twitter Inc. for $44 billion cash on Monday in a transaction that will shift control of the social media platform populated by millions of users and global leaders to the world's richest person. It is a seminal moment for the 16-year-old company, which emerged as one of the world's most influential public squares and now faces a string of challenges. Musk, who calls himself a, a free speech absolutist, has criticized Twitter's moderation. He wants Twitter's algorithm—he, yeah—wants Twitter's algorithm for prioritizing, prioritizing tweets to be public and objects to giving too much power to the service to corporations that advertise. Political activists expect that a Musk regime will mean less moderation and reinstate the. Read statement of banned individuals, including former President Donald Trump, who, mind you, has just recently said that he would not return to the platform, even if allowed. Conservatives cheered the prospect of fewer controls, while some human rights activists voiced fears of a rise in hate speech. Musk is also advocating user-friendly tweaks to the service, such as an edit button and defeating spam bots that send overwhelming amounts of unwanted tweets. Discussion over the deal, which last week appeared uncertain, accelerated over the weekend after Musk wooed Twitter shareholders with with financing details of his offer. Under pressure, Twitter started negotiating with Musk to buy the company at a proposed $54.20 per share. "...free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy, and Twitter is the digital town square where matters vital to the future of humanity are debated," Musk uh, said in a statement. Former Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey weighed in on the deal late on Monday with a series of tweets that thanked both Musk and current Twitter CEO Parag Agarwal for, quote, "...getting the company out of an impossible situation." Twitter as a company has always been my sole issue and my biggest regret. It has been owned by Wall Street and the ad model. Taking it back from Wall Street is the fir- is the correct first step, he said. Um so I mean first of all let's I guess we can start on the business side of it, which again this is an issue I'm not incredibly well versed in, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it and I'm also not that interested in it. I mean I think it's inter- I think you know Jack Dorsey being Jack Dorsey like this has been his like whole thing for such a long time. If, if it's got his stamp of approval, that's pretty impressive to me. Um, uh, in terms of stuff like that, like getting rid of spam bots, um, I think that's I think these are all great ideas. And I think if that's what he wants to do, then I, I hope he's successful. I'm not going to wish on his downfall for stupid reasons. Speaking of stupid reasons, let's talk about the political reaction to this. So conservatives are cheering this on as the Uh, elated celebration of free speech Uh, liberals are saying that this is the end of democracy as we know it Uh, what is her name oh what is her name she's an actress, she's an activist I think she's pretty great but sometimes she can get on my nerves what is her name her name is I just saw her in an episode from like season 9 of Impractical Jokers what is her name she was in the good place what is her name it's not coming to me. I don't know. She said something about her final tweet. It was one of those times where I was like, okay, that's cool. calm down. You know, I think it's an overreaction on both sides, obviously. I mean, and I know I'm biased towards, like, middleism, like, ooh. Everything's in the middle. But that often is true. And what I really mean by everything's in the middle is really just everything needs more context than what liberals and conservatives give it because liberals and conservatives are ideologically possessed and obviously want to make everything a reflection of their ideological values while overinflating the evil of people they don't like. Now, first, I want to talk about something. Elon Musk is not a right wing figure. Any person who says that he is is blatantly ignoring any piece of information that that does not align with that opinion, with that idea. Because ultimately, Musk is liked by conservatives because he has certain beliefs, such as allowing people to, I suppose, have free speech. I'm interested to see where he goes on that, because I never heard an elaboration on what that means. Like, I never had an issue with that. And I think maybe the best way to kind of... um, Sorry, I've got some stuff on my computer. To kind of break this down for you is read you the article I wrote uh on April 26th so like early like Tuesday so I wrote this just a day after the transaction I want to write I want to read to you some of what I wrote if maybe the whole thing um to just kind of ex- express how I'm how I'm seeing this um because I think both sides are wrong I think liberals are overinflating how quote unquote evil Elon Musk is to try and justify um, their hatred of political ideology that isn't just their own, because at the end of the day, anytime something that they don't like happens, they need to justify them advocating for their ideological dominance over all of culture and politics. And so this is kind of their moment to do that. While I think conservatives are over, over how much of a oh free speech thing this is, uh, just because by virtue of the fact that i think a lot of the people that were like banned like like donald trump i think his banning from twitter was completely justified because he he used his words which is what twitter is focused on to encourage an insurrection at the capitol so obviously i think that was completely justified so i'm going to try and find bits and pieces of this issue okay let me start here this is from the article i wrote tuesday which i'll link that somewhere you'll you know if you go to my link on my um Instagram, you'll find it. Um, I said, Elon Musk himself has said that his ownership is focused on market shares and freedom of speech, that to be the global square of discourse, people need to be able to say what they want. Like, I, while I have yet to see an actual elaboration on what Musk means by this, both sides of the aisle have been quick to make their assertions with relative truth likely applicable to them. But that's the ultimate issue, isn't it? Political partisans don't make predictions to determine what is true and then whether or not it is morally harmful as a result. They make broad, ideologically confirmative moral assertions that almost always come to the conclusion their tribe is superior in every way and should be the sole arbiter of discourse and policy, and then reverse engineer the evidence to be interpreted in a way that comes to that conclusion for them. I feel comfortable saying that's how political ideologies work when it comes to intellectual and moral interpretation. Backwards. Um, and that's kind of, I to kind of pause out of my article, this is no longer me reading, this is me just sort of speaking off the top of my mind. That's exactly where I have a problem. Liberals ultimately have associated Elon Musk with conservatives because conservatives happen to like him. The thing about Musk is, he's, he doesn't consider himself conservative, nor would I say he's pro-Republican or pro-Democrat. This is a guy who, is, who has given equal amounts of money to influential Republicans and Democrats. This is a guy who has criticized Donald Trump repeat, repetitively. This is a guy who has called openly called himself a socialist. This is a guy who doesn't belong in any camp because he doesn't feel at home there. That's what I think. And I'm not just saying that because I don't feel at home in any camp. I'm saying this because I've looked at his tweets, I've seen other people's commentary of it, and it seems pretty clear to me that this guy doesn't like one group or the other more, and is giving them any, uh, I guess, leeway. And I could sit here and say, oh well, he's being fair to conservatives, so therefore he's enabling authoritarianism. But I believe all political ideologies having any kind of leeway in the strongest senses would give it would would be shilling out for authoritarianism. Because I believe political ideologies will inherently become tyrannical over the course of time, because political ideologies are delusional and believe in an idea of ideological utopia based on their remote subjective experiences without the interpretation of other people's experiences. Experiences, and therefore they think that their experiences are the moral abject truth and must be confirmed. And so for me to say that his his being fairness to conservatives is some kind of shilling out for authoritarianism would be stupid because I believe that both that everyone is susceptible to political tyranny because political tyranny is not the result of a conservative giving getting what he wants or a liberal getting what he wants political tyranny is the result of an ideology not being given utopia on a platter and so for me to say that everything that is conservative equals Tyranny And so Elon Musk equals tyranny would be brain dead. And I think that is a brain dead statement that's based in only trying to tell everyone in the world wrongfully and stupidly that liberalism and that that del- that leftism is a perfect God like God like ideology of truth, nobility, and justice, when in reality, it's never going to be better than the right. Never, never, never. I don't believe that at all. And therefore, I'm willing to justify Elon Musk's buy and say that maybe he's got a point. Now, what I'm really interested to see is what he does. I don't care what conservatives say, and I don't care what liberals say. You're both stupid people who would, if they could get what they wanted, shut down all democracy and just establish an ideological utopia, otherwise known as despotism. So that's that's kind of pulling out from that. That's what I mean by that is that I'm not going to believe liberals when they say this is the end of the democracy, because they if they wanted to, if they could, if it was politically correct, they would end democracy themselves. As far as I'm concerned, they've never proven to me in the last five to to seven years that they wouldn't do that. I've never seen that. I've seen that from individual candidates who truly believe in the ideals of democracy. But the political institutions of this country seem to be perfectly willing to write away democracy whenever democracy doesn't reaffirm that their ideological values are the objective values of the nation. So I'm not willing to believe either side because all political ideologies do is reverse engineer evidence and reverse engineer associations to create an ideological narrative that reaffirms their despotic desires for total utopia. Um I'm going to read you my next part. I'm going to read you the last the second to last and the the last two or three paragraphs of the article. Quote, uh, whether it's Sean King or Tucker Carlson, I've always felt like the worst part of Twitter was its ability to platform divisive and ideologically possessed figures with big like numbers and huge reshare rates, followed by the morons in the comments replying to any good faith divergence from the ideological consensus of these social media fat cats and their followers with, quote, ratio or, quote, L. That's the biggest downfall of social media politics for me. It's too easy for users to hide in anonymity with their opinions, overinflate the issues that are happening, and engage in a mob-rule society, coupled with a poor social court with a jury of people who have no incentive to actually engage with ideas they are aversive to, despite the platform empowering them with a massive and free resource to see the larger world beyond their subjective experiences alone. This ties into some of, some thoughts on self-selection theory in relation to social media, which is contested to some degree by experts." Ultimately, I think both sides are doing what they do best, over-interpreting another issue to flame anger within their ideological group and re-engage their activists with passion to fight for the agencies with power over situations like these to hand them the sole privileges of such association with power. And while I'll wait out the first quarter of Musk's new reign over Twitter to see how much of truth his calls for free speech and transparency last i'm more more than willing to say his subjects on the site have already proven he's got a mountain to overpower if he wants the toxic culture they've created on the site to ever cease at the end of the day i believe i i'm not a fan of twitter because i don't like anyone that uses twitter i think people that use twitter engage in mob society and and, and uh popularity contests of ideology i think i've said this frequently I th- i think that I think that um, that I think that Twitter is a place where bad ideas become popular and good ideas are over are completely oversaturated by by idiots and it's a massive problem, you know. Platforms like Twitter and the thing is, I rail Twitter and I rail social media often, with the exception that I also turn around and say that it can be an, an amazing tool, because it can be an amazing tool. But the problem is when you give a tool with that much scope and that much power to people who don't have any principles, to people who don't have any any integrity or or or, or um, I suppose a sense of of faith in the ideologies they're they're proposing or maybe not faith but a sense of critical thinking. When you give people without the critical thinking skills this massive platform, they immediately do what they do with everything else, and they they structure it in a means to reinforce ideological echo chambers and try and, and miscue all kind, all information, everything, because at the end of the day, I currently believe that political ideologies are just inherently delusional and would rather live in an ideological utopia where nothing but their beliefs are reaffirmed while everyone else's are shut completely down. And so... You know, like I said, my issue is not with the platform, like even though I, I like I recognize that the algorithm definitely has some issues, you know, Twitter executives and high ups and the, you know, these these conservative action groups have caught them on camera in sting operations saying they want to silence conservative voices. That is happening. Absolutely. And I hope it stops. I hope Elon Musk puts an end to it. That's great. That's awesome. Good for him. Um, But at the end of the day, it won't matter if he does that, as far as I'm concerned, because Political partisans create toxic environments of destruction, disarray, and bad ideas by simply being political partisans. I think we need, in order to foster those kinds of engagements, maybe we need, maybe people like me need to start downloading Twitter. Um, maybe we need people to constantly be a, a thorn in the side of liberals and conservatives, because otherwise, um, Twitter's just another sandbox for them to throw around um, ideological aphorisms and, and overinflated and overinflate things that are that are happening and. And ultimately do what social media politics, I think, does best focus on things that are of of no um, material value to the real world and focus on ideological hypotheticals and and what ifs while the real world people are suffering. And I think that I've got a big problem with that. You know, I, I desperately I, I desperately despise um, social media politics and online like these people that do like Twitch debates and stuff because i think it doesn't matter i think i think people that argue about politics on the internet are are are, are losers are, are just losers who engage in ideological hypotheticals and what ifs and and are the worst kinds of delusional partisans that believe in ideological supremacy without acknowledging that perhaps no political ideology is really capable of governing efficiently because ideological parties and factions ultimately live by a set of values that that are absolutes which i i don't believe history i am not convinced history has ever proven is ever actually uh, um worked in the in the span of in of history so Perhaps I'm wrong. Perhaps I'm wrong. But but maybe, I don't know. The point is, I don't think it's going to change a lot about how bad Twitter is. But that's because Twitter kind of sucks, in my opinion, because of its users. Um, Because because its users use algorithms and platforms to um, drown out reason and reinforce delusion. So um, I hope Elon Musk is successful. And I hope this free speech thing doesn't backfire. Because if it does, it can empower voices that... Hey, deserve to be heard. Um, And, uh, you know, like if they're wrong and here's the thing, and I, I know I'm going on and on about this, but here's the thing about free speech. If someone's wrong, like. Not everyone who identifies as conservatives is saying they love Hitler. Not everyone is Nick Fuentes. Okay, that guy's crazy. Not everyone is that guy. The vast majority of conservatives that I know here in the real world, not on social media, but here in real life, are just down-to-earth people trying to protect the things they believe in and and trying to protect the things that, that these crazy politicians, like the person we're going to talk about in our next piece of news, Marjorie Taylor Greene or Madison Cawthorn, are manipulating for political power and ideological dominance. So basically, the people, there are people in Congress with the attitudes of these delusional, crazy social media conservatives manipulating real-life conservatives and their values to in- engage in ideological despotism, in my opinion. And so I think that there needs to be a reconnect between the real world. We need to, to disconnect social media politics as much as possible from Washington, D.C., and reconnect it with the real world because, you know— those people matter, and they're not bad people. I know from experience. I, I live around them. I, I, I live in the South. I know these people, and they're not bad people at heart. Some of them are, yes. I, I know some people that are truly awful people, believe in ideological dominance. They want conservatism to rule the world, and you know they believe in these kinds of things that are, that are not American in nature, and that's whatever. I mean, those people are bound to exist. Like I said, I, I believe that's how political ideology inherently works. But not everyone has the time to get that entrenched in it. Right. And so there are a lot of people out here, a lot of down to earth, just basic people trying to live their lives by set of values that works for them. And if those people want to get on Twitter and say and say um, just like something really broad and not, you know, controversial uh, in in nature, like like I liked Trump's uh, I liked Trump Operation Warp Speed. I thought that was a good idea and I thought that made him a good president. Um, That's not worth banning people over. okay? Uh, if you want to disprove that, or if you want to say, I think that's a good idea, but I think that his rhetoric destroyed his ability, like that's, it's called discourse, man. Discourse, that's what, how it works. And I'm not saying that, that this is happening. This is obviously hypothetical and engaging in this type of hypothetical really wouldn't pan out. But I have seen I guess, suppose situations similar to this, both on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and all these others. And I think it's because these companies don't know how to prioritize, Uh, truth as well as engagement, which engagement equals money for them. So, I don't know. There's a lot of moving factors, and it's not just good versus evil. That's stupid, and you're wrong. What a great conclusion to come to. I come to that conclusion on every issue, basically. Hey, we're already halfway through. Uh, it, make sure to follow my Instagram. That's at huynoah. That's at h u g h u y n o a h. That's at Noah and subscribe to Under the Stars on YouTube for my favorite moments and clips from the show. You can find Under the Stars on Spotify, where that's where the video is, or Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts to listen. And make sure wherever you're listening to give it a review, or watching to give it a review would be greatly appreciated. You can support the show through my merch and my books in the shop section of my website. And hey, while you're at it, make sure to look out for my fourth book, Hanging in the Balance, which will be available for purchase on Amazon or in my store on Friday, May 29th, about this time next month. I think it's great. I think it's a good book. Um, And so if you're interested, check it out. So there's been a lot of news related to the January 6th. Commission, there was a piece of news I was trying to find a good article on, but I really couldn't find anything that that I felt worked. So I'm just going to briefly mention it. Um, There was news about Kevin McCarthy. There's new audio recordings of him talking to Liz Cheney, talking about asking President Trump, I believe, to um, either accept impeachment or resign. That's what it was. And he was throwing out hypotheticals. And, you know, I just think that kind of talks about the two-sidedness of Kevin McCarthy. Really makes me trust him less because of the fact that this is a guy who... I mean, this guy is now saying that, oh, none of these conversations ever happened. And we've got these conversations on tape being played for audiences of, of thousands of millions on uh, nationally syndicated news networks. So he's got a hill to climb to try and deny that he that, that was going to happen. It's definitely going to make him lose his favor with Trump, which I think is a, as good of a thing as it can get. But it really makes me trust Kevin McCarthy a lot less because this is a guy who... Tried to paint himself as a, as a supporter of Trump. Like, if you're going to be a delusional partisan, go all the way, right? Don't don't feel guilty about it and then say, and then reverse course and go back to saying, ah, oh, nothing wrong, is wrong with January 6th. Either, either stand up for what you believe in, like Kevin seemed to have been going for there. I think this was January 11th in this phone call. Or, or, or... Uh, stay delusional, stay part of your extreme partisanship, you know, like go like, I don't know, like, I don't like that flip floppiness. That's not there. That's not trustworthy to me. Makes me, I trust people less who do that, who, who like see behind closed doors are truly people with, who have a moral compass, but then they throw it away for political points. That's, that's a terrible look. In other news, there are lots of text messages handed over by Mark Meadows to the January 6th committee, and Marjorie Taylor Greene discussed using martial law to keep Trump in power, Um, which is—this isn't a new idea that conservatives have used to try and um, decertify the election because they didn't like the result. Um, I think there was a lawyer at some point who who said it. I think it was an idea in a PowerPoint that was slid out. So this isn't the first time. And it's not surprising for Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is a radical um, conservative who I think ultimately would love to just get rid of any election results that don't confirm ideological majorities. Um, so let me read this real quick. Republican Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene suggested in a text message sent three days before Joe Biden was sworn in as president that some of former President Donald Trump's staunchest allies wanted to declare martial law to keep Trump in power. In our private chat with Only members, several are saying the only way to save our republic is for Trump to to call for martial law. She spells it M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L law and not M-A-R-T-I-A-L law. So that's, I thought that made my week, honestly. That was the funniest thing I'd seen all week. Green texted to Trump's then chief of staff, Mark Meadows, on January 17th, 2021, 11 days after a pro-Trump mob attacked the U.S. Capitol to try and stop the certification of the vote. The messages were revealed Monday by CNN, which said it obtained all 2,319 text messages that Meadows selectively handed over to the White House or er, over to the House Select January 6th committee in the late 2021 before he decided not to cooperate with the panel. The authenticity of the messages has been confirmed by this point. So, um, yeah, there's, there's actually not a lot to discuss there because I've discussed, you know, it's just another classic case of ideological partisans of the most extreme kind trying to to destroy democracy when it doesn't do what they like. And that's why that's why I have this sort of running thesis. And here's the thing, I'm willing to drop it whenever, but I, I, I have a running thesis that just political factionism and political ideology just isn't synonymous with democracy. Um, I explore this deeply in the new book. So I'm not going to dive deep into it here and now because obviously I'd want you to read about it. Also, I think I just, it's better when it's written because I can actually process my thoughts and I'm not trying to speak at the speed of light because I've got like 10 minutes till I need to wrap things up. Um, But I am going to briefly discuss it here because, hey, that's what the podcast is for. It's my soapbox. Um, you know, the running thesis is just that political ideologies, no matter how good intention they start, become absolutist. They become, ex- and then they become extreme when they don't quickly receive the kind of victory they want and they clash with each other they clash with other parties they create disarray disillusion and and disinvolvement because nobody wants to be involved in extreme political partisanship so many people don't vote because it's just too much so many people you know vote for one party only because it's too stressful to try and vote on principle and they they don't they want to feel like they have a say and they're being told if they don't vote for someone that isn't in the two major powerful parties that they're not giving having a voice when in reality they're just being manipulated to keep that two-party duopoly in power. Like, it just seems to me historically in the United States, but also in the history of the world, that ideologies aren't synonymous with good governments or democracy. They they always seem to devolve eventually into a form of tyranny, whether it be a totalitarian communist regime under Stalin or, or really any of the people who were in charge of the USSR or, or, um, the Chinese communist party in China or whether they're monarchical tyrants, Kings like King George, the third, or basically anyone in the, in the, uh, in the British throne over the course of history. Um, or whether it's the papacy during the middle ages, like, Political ideologies start off perhaps in humble roots around the idea of getting people together who have the share, who have shared experiences and shared beliefs and trying to have a say in government, but then they begin to believe that they should have the only say in government, that their subjective experiences are objective, actually, and that their way of life is better than everyone else's objectively, and we should all bow down to their whim. And when they are, aren't given extreme power, when they aren't given total authority over government, which is, I believe should act as an independent agency with the input of political ideologies as the representatives who keep the engine of government moving on, they become despotic and tyrannical. They become extreme. And the longer and longer that they aren't given ideological utopia, the more and more extreme they will become. That is why I believe the two-party system is really just a one-way path to the end of democracy in America, because eventually one of these two parties is going to snap or a new party is going to show up and then it will snap. Something is bound to break. Eventually. I think if my thesis on political ideology is truly correct, which God, God help us. It's not, but if it truly is, then that would to suppo- that would be to suppose. That's not a sentence. What that would be to say that It would eventually give out. So this kind of rhetoric, to kind of return back to the subject, is not surprising or new. Marjorie Taylor Greene is an extremist who I think truly believes in ideological dominance and doesn't care if people suffer under a Republican legislature or a Republican majority. She would simply say those people aren't doing it right, Um, just like how people say that about communism, just like how people say that under a Democratic majority. I, I just... I believe more and more every day in this thesis that that political ideologies simply aren't synonymous with true democratic governments because they seem to be completely anti-democratic in their entire inception— and the longer and longer they aren't given an ideological majority over a de- over the values of democracy, the more and more extreme they get, until they get to a point that Republicans have gotten to now, where they are now calling for martial law. Like I said, this is not the first time that we have discussed this. Martial law has been brought up multiple times in relation to the 2020 election, and has been seriously considered by some of the closest allies to Donald Trump, um in his inner circle, which is incredibly dangerous and a very real threat to democracy, I think. It can be very much interpreted that way. Do I think it's an impending doom and destruction? No, but I think it's really close, and it's not good, and it's not healthy, and it shouldn't be motivated in any way. But it's just, i, I it's not something where I think it's like inherent conservatism leads to this. I, I think this political... Ho- ideology in here. I think if Democrats were in as desperate of a state, they would probably do that as well. And you know, we see this in the legislature all the time where they're constantly rewriting the rules, making it harder and harder for anyone but them to stay in power. So this isn't a new thing. It's not partisan a partisan issue. Both parties any party I think probably would engage in this kind of activity if my assessment is correct based on uh the the Democrats and the Republicans. So it's an interesting topic, and its I think it can be very dangerous, and it is very dangerous, and we, we really dodged a bullet there, because um, if something like that would have happened, who knows where America would be at this position, which makes it really feel like a banana republic, which is depressing. In slightly better news, Fauci has um, <sighs> Fauci had said something about the U.S. being out of the pandemic phase. That's an exact quote, and he's now walking back on that comment. Um, Dr. Anthony Fauci, Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease expert, wants Americans to know the, pan- the pandemic is not over after he told PBS Tuesday that the United States is out of the pandemic phase with COVID-19. I want to clarify one thing Fauci told NPR on Wednesday afternoon. I understand how that could lead to the, some misinterpretation. I was talking about the acute ful- uh, yeah, fulminant. fulminant? excuse me, phase, and everyone agrees we're not there. We're not getting 900,000 infections a day. Is the pandemic still here? Absolutely. Fauci, who directs the National Institute of Allergy Allergy and Infectious Diseases, (coughs) has cited the current low level of COVID-19 hospitalizations and deaths nationwide as his reasoning for the bold out-of-the-pandemic phase statement, arguing that the country is out of a crisis mode with the coronavirus, at least for now. When I said phase, I probably should have said the acute stage of the pandemic phase, he told NPR 1A host Jen White. Um, he was expressing the idea that the country is transitioning into a phase of the outbreak where the level of infection is low enough that people are starting to learn to live with the virus, still protecting themselves by vaccination, by the availability of antivirals, by testing. You know, conservatives will say this is a corrupt, evil dictator trying to preserve his money and blah 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 blah. You know, I think there is certain conflicts of interest. I think I've said this many, many, many times. I've criticized Fauci when he, when, when evidence has contradicted what he said, um, when he, when the NIH and when the CDC, kind of jumps around certain evidence, but I I think that I don't believe inherently that these institutions are corrupt like Disney villains because I I just don't believe in that pathology. I don't believe in that kind of absolute good and absolute evil. I think it's it's an an unfalsifiable idea. Therefore, I do not think it exists because if something is as unfalsifiable as these moral assertions of absolute good and absolute evil, you go into this really gray area of something that can be incredibly subjective. Therefore, I do not believe it exists. So, I'm not one to jump and say he's a Disney villain protecting his, his wealth or whatever. I, I just think that this is a guy who is constantly throwing new evidence, who's, who's aging. I mean, he's only a couple years older than Joe Biden. You know, this is... I don't know. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I, I happen to agree with him there. I mean, I think that, yeah, if you look at evidence, which I do try and regularly read what new studies and new um, research is saying we do seem to be in a phase where yeah, we're we're slowly moving out of it. I mean, Europe was in this started the process that America's going through um a little while ago, and that's not new. America tends to be a little slow to those kinds of things. Um, so that's that's not a new concept. But I do think that um I do think his i i I don't think there's anything suspicious about this. I don't think there's anything weird. I think this is just a guy who who Said a thing, people jumped, yeah. You know, the, the stupid political people whose opinions are at this point moot, in my as far as I'm concerned, you know, it, it doesn't matter. There's uh, this, there's really not much of a story to say. I think, I think it's ultimately correct. You know, you know, people are testing, there's a lot of vaccination going on. If you feel unsafe, wear a mask. Uh, uh if you're not boosted, boost. If you're not vaccinated, get vaccinated. Um, or you know, if you want to go balls to the wall, which is a strange sentence now that I'm saying it out loud, it, it sounded better in my head. If you if you want to go, run that risk, you know, run the risk of going unvaccinated. And if you die, that's that's ultimately something we would have to take responsibility for. But there is a lot of other factors that play in. A, you know, the pandemic has always been an issue that there are a massive moving parts and it's not just about good or evil. Um, I think that's stupid. Um and yeah, so there's there's not much to say there. I think that's correct, and I, you know, I'm not. I think yeah, that's I. I trust that kind of judgment. I think that um, it's a good thing that we're slowly moving out, and it's one of those things that as more people get vaccinated and and as the world, you know, kind of on this issue, if you look at like if you look at Shanghai right now, they had like one a handful of cases, and now the whole place is shut down. There are massive supply issues. People are saying they're having issues with food rationing, that kind of response is, 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 uh, uh, and overplayed. And it's just a state trying to like, it's just trying to, trying to make itself look perfect when in reality, it like, it's trying to say, look, we have zero, cause they have a zero COVID policy. They're trying look, we have zero cases and the U S has said such and such thousand cases, losers, which is stupid and pointless and a waste of time. And they're running it now at the risk of letting their people suffer. So at the end of the day, I'm not trying to claim moral majority for the United States here, but I am going to say that 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 whole process that they're trying to like claim some kind of superiority is one stupid and pointless but two they're doing it at the risk of hurting their people that's unreasonable at this stage in the in the pandemic and I think every I've heard this from multiple experts who have all said yeah that's an unreasonable thing people talking about Shanghai so I think I want to shed some light on that subject but other than that when it comes to these specific comments I think that's correct. the U.S. is moving into a new phase of COVID and what matters is that we keep our minds open and remember that it's a big issue with tons of huge moving parts it's not just good or evil it's not just right or wrong it's there are tons of factors that play in to the solutions and the problem itself and we need to try and adapt with them best as we can that's called critical thinking i know people who are political partisans are nearly entirely uh unable to do this but give it a shot i think it'll work so Yeah, that's all I have to say about that. You know, shed some light on Shanghai, which what they're doing is um, undefendable. I mean, there's nothing about it that makes sense or works. And so, yeah, that's all there is to say about that. Um, There's no real great conclusion I can pull from all this other than authoritarian governments don't work. And political ideologies, I think, will inherently become authoritarian when they're not given the satisfaction of an ideological utopia. Which is the same conclusion I come to almost every single podcast. oh man so yeah that's that's it for this week thanks so much for listening in it's been great having you make sure to follow my instagram that's at Noah. that's at h-u-g-h-u-y-n-o-a-h that's at Noah, and subscribe to under the stars on youtube for my favorite clips and moments from the show You can find under the stars on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever you're listening or watching, make sure to give a review. Greatly appreciated. You can also support my show through my merch and my books in the shop section of my website. My fourth book, Hanging in the Balance, America's Manufactured Democratic Crisis, will be available for purchase on Amazon or in my store on Friday, May 29th. Thanks so much for listening in. It's been great having you, and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.